holidays, everyone. Welcome to Myth in the Mojave, a weekly half hour of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. This is your personal mythologist, Catherine Svela. I live in Joshua Tree, and I'm very pleased to bring this program to the high desert and beyond here on Radio Free Joshua Tree. This is a very potent time. Of course, magic of some form or another is always available to us. But the month of December and moving into January, crossing the threshold of the new year, is so rich mythologically, psychologically, and spiritually. Because we're engaged, whether we're consciously realizing it or not, with the balance between light and darkness and the dance between our shadows as individuals and cultures and our aspirations. The solstice, the longest night of the year, which marks the turning point back to the light, is probably one of the most celebrated moments in the year. Traditions all around the globe mark this day, and it's one of the oldest holidays or ritual events in human history as far as we know. But today, I want to talk about Santa Claus. Now, I know that Santa Claus may seem like one of the more trivial aspects of our incredibly commercialized Christmas holiday. But like a lot of important figures, he really has some interesting mythological roots, roots that take us into themes that are much deeper than just the ho-ho-ho and the ruddy cheeks in the Coke commercials. One commonly understood source or predecessor of Santa Claus is St. Nicholas, who was a Catholic bishop and saint in the 4th century. He lived in what is now Turkey and was well known as a miracle worker with a reputation for giving gifts anonymously, including putting coins in the shoes of people. According to one legend, he heard about a very poor man who had three daughters, and the daughters did not have dowries, so the father wasn't able to get them married off, and he was about ready to sell them into slavery, which means prostitution. And St. Nicholas heard about this, and as the story goes, he went to the man's house at night and tossed a bag of gold coins through the window. And he did this every night for three nights, a bag of coins for each one of the daughters. And by the time the third night came around, the father was determined to learn the identity of his benefactor. So he staked out the window and he discovered that it was St. Nick who was doing this. There are lots of stories of this kind of generosity on the part of St. Nick. Explains his ability to not only survive over the centuries, but also be morphed and reworked into figures that have relevance for us even today. Now, another theory of Santa Claus that's a little bit more far out, perhaps, but That could mainly be a matter of how much we've really investigated it. Links Santa with ancient shamans and reindeer 
eating psychedelic mushrooms together. Now, according to this theory, up until a few hundred years ago, practicing shamans, and we're thinking Siberia and other places, cold and snowy, um, shamans and priests in these areas who were still connected to the older traditions would collect Amanita, the holy mushroom, dry them, and then give them as gifts on the winter solstice. Now, I haven't read the book, but apparently in a book titled Mushrooms and Mankind by James Arthur, there is some exploration of this theory as well as a broader discussion about the relationship between ethnobotany and hallucinogenic plants and human religions and mythologies. In any event, this is an idea that is taken seriously by some anthropologists. Now, the ancestor of Santa Claus that I want to go into a little bit more deeply today is the god Odin from Norse mythology. But before I talk about Odin and tell some of his stories, I want to throw one more thing out there for you. I've been thinking a lot about this time and how to frame the stories that I'm telling and the holidays that we're celebrating and the reflection that we're all doing together in listening to uh, this show (laughs) and in going about our own personal and collective rituals to celebrate this time of year. And what I found myself asking is, what can I do? What can you do? What can we do to shake off our complacency and stretch ourselves? Because this turning point or tipping point in the year is an opportunity for reinvention and rebirth and for the emergence of something new. I mean, that's one way to read the birth of the Christ child in Christian mythologies, for example. Now, we might not all have the same answer. What do you do to shake off your complacency and stretch yourself? For some of us, it might be an infusion of discipline, taking yourself more seriously, understanding that there are consequences. Or maybe it's more inspiration and being willing to open yourself up just a little bit more to the miracles that constantly surround us. It's amazing how little attention we pay to all of the everyday magic. It makes me think of uh, that story, King and the Corpse, that I told at some point earlier this year, where every day the king is handed a piece of fruit. And because he thinks it's just a piece of fruit, and as a king he's got lots of fruit, he never investigates it any further. And then one day a monkey bites into the fruit and out falls a jewel. A precious jewel. Our days are a lot like that. Each one of them is a precious jewel. So this week I was contemplating the story that I was going to tell and trying to figure out what direction to go in. And I noticed that there were lots of ravens flying across the valley below my little studio here. And it was really striking. And you see, ravens are the special companions 
of the god Odin. And so I let that make my decision for me. I let that clinch things. You know, I've been reading the Odyssey a lot lately, and there's another place where people pay a lot of attention to birds, and the folks that don't, they didn't end up so well. So, following the ravens here. But when I was looking up holidays, I discovered that St. Nicholas, who we talked about a few minutes earlier, had a day, December 6th was St. Nicholas Day. And I also discovered that December 8th was Bodhi Day, a Buddhist holiday that commemorates the day that Siddhartha, or Shakyamuni, that is Buddha, achieved enlightenment and became a Buddha. So you note that here we have that notion of light again, enlightenment. And the central realization or message of the Buddha that we're all interconnected. And this, of course, is a theme that's echoed throughout all of our great religious, that is, mythological traditions. Regardless of religious belief or mythological affiliation, this is a time when many of us reflect on compassion and generosity and community and allow ourselves to be moved by the possibilities there, which go well beyond deserving anything and well into the realm of good luck or grace. So let's get on with Odin and Norse mythology. Odin was the top god or the father god. He was called the father of all in the Norse pantheon. And this pantheon really fascinates me because unlike other mythologies, this group of gods operates with the knowledge, the prophecy, that they will be defeated in a great war, die, and that their world will end. So there is a sense of consequences for these divine figures, a weight and a shadow of tragedy even, that allows these gods to be heroic in a way that the Greek gods, for example, cannot be. Now, the significance of that is a topic for another day. Let me tell you a little bit more about Odin and his connection to Santa Claus. Odin was very wise He had the long, gray, white hair and beard. He had a flying horse, and he was known to give gifts of a sort. (laughs) And explaining that's going to be the story that I'm going to tell about him today. But so let's take these things up one at a time. Odin was wise. Odin was dedicated to preventing the big war, the Ragnarok, that was going to be the end of his cosmic time. He was the god of battle and death, but also of poetry. And he only had one eye, because as part of his quest for understanding and the means to prevent this great war, he went to the well of knowledge, which was at the base of the great world tree. Now, this well was guarded by a being called Mirmir, who drank from the well every day and was reputed to be the wisest man in the world. So when Odin heard about this, he went, and when he got there, 
Mirmir said, I know who you are, Odin, and I know why you're here, but the knowledge that's provided by this water far surpasses anything that you can imagine, because whoever gets to drink from this gets a second sight. They get the ability to see, you know, into the depths of things, what's behind things, and you have to pay for that. You don't get that for free. And so, without hesitation, Odin tore out one of his eyes and dropped it beside the well. Then Mirmer allowed him to drink and drink and drink and drink until he would burst. And this is one of the reasons why Odin has the two ravens. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, I was partially inspired to talk to you about Odin because of all of the ravens that I saw flying around. And he had these two ravens. One of them was named Thought, and one of them was named Memory. And these two ravens traveled up and down between the three realms and flew around the world tree. And they saw everything that happened and then came back every day to Odin to report to him on all the activities of the cosmos. So Odin was very wise. So let's move on to the horse, this flying horse. The flying horse's name was Schleppner. And it wasn't just a flying horse. It was an eight-legged gray horse who could fly. It was widely agreed that Schleppner was the finest horse that ever lived with his own share of intelligence. And he came about as the result of an action that was taken by Loki, who is the Norse trickster. You may recall from other programs where I've talked about the trickster, the trickster is very important because even when he makes mistakes, he brings new energies into the culture. New things happen around the trickster in the cracks that appear when he breaks the rules and in his successful and failed experiments to push the boundaries of things. Now, in the early days, the Norse gods were in their realm, which was called Asgard. And they were busy building their houses and, and great halls and and basically setting up, you know, a city, a built community. And they wanted to have a wall built around their homes to protect them from enemies, because this is a mythology where the gods do have enemies. And an unnamed builder came to them and said that he would build the wall and that he could do it in just three months, working completely by himself. Now, this seemed like an impossible task. And so Odin and all of the other gods were very dubious that he would succeed. And so the builder said, well, I'll tell you what, if I do succeed, then I want the goddess Freya as my wife. And I want control of the sun and the moon too. Well, the gods didn't think that this builder was going to be able to complete the task, but they were a little bit nervous about making a deal like that. But the trickster, Loki, said, oh, you know, don't be so skittish. He's not going to be able to do it. You'll have a really good start on a magnificent wall, and it won't cost you a penny or a drop of sweat. 
then the builder said, oh, one more thing while you're deciding. Um, I, I'll do it by myself, but I'm going to need my horse. Now, the gods didn't like this little wrinkle, but Loki convinced them that the horse wasn't going to make very much difference. I mean, given the scale of the task. And so the bet was made. The builder begins his work with the aid of his horse, and the horse was this great, huge, powerful stallion named Salvafari, or Salvafari, I'm, that's beyond me. And the horse, as it turns out, could do the work of 20 men. It hauled these enormous, enormous rocks, and the building of the wall went along quite rapidly. Now, when there were only three days left, it was very clear to the gods that they were going to lose the bet and that the builder was going to succeed, and they were very unhappy about this. So Odin called them all together to talk about the problem, and the gods decided that it was Loki's fault because he talked him into it. Loki, they said, you are to blame, and so you're going to have to put a stop to this building and make sure that we don't lose the bet, or you're going to suffer a terrible death. Loki was afraid, and so he agreed to come up with a scheme. That night, the builder drove out to fetch some stones with his stallion, with the unpronounceable name, and suddenly this magnificent mare ran out of the woods and called to the stallion, and then ran off. Well, the stallion predictably tore himself away from its owner's grip and ran after the mare without a backward glance. Around and around and around the woods, the two horses ran, with the builder running after them. They ran all night. And so everyone was so tired that very little building got done, and the gods won their bet. Somewhat later, however, Loki gave birth to a gray foal, with eight legs, named Schlepner, the best horse among gods and men. And Schlepner now became Odin's horse. Now, Odin, as I said, was, among other things, the god of war. Odin often led his warriors to battle or to hunt, and the people called this the wild hunt. You knew that they were passing by whenever the wind blew very hard, and during the 12 days of Christmas, beginning with the winter solstice, Odin was known to ride with an even larger and less reputable band of warriors than usual. It was believed that the gates of the underworld opened and that spirits of the dead often made an appearance. Yule fires were lit to encourage the return of the sun, and prudent folks stayed inside away from the dark paths and the wild woods. Dressed in his dark cloak and a wide brim hat, with his long white beard flowing, Odin would rush through the skies on Slepner. In front of him were a hooting owl and his two ravens. Behind him was a phantom horde of hound dogs and the ghosts of dead heroes and the souls of those who had been caught between heaven and hell. This group would just hurtle through the night in pursuit of 
who knows what. A boar or maybe a fairy maiden. Whenever this group called the Raging Host went by, it was marked with a tumultuous racket of pounding hooves and the sound of howling dogs and the wind blowing. It was very dangerous to be outside during that time and experience the wild hunt and act disrespectfully. According to one story, a miller's son who was outside during this time once rudely yelled out to the hunters, Take me with you! And they replied, If you want to hunt, you can also eat, and threw him a human leg. Disrespect was dangerous, but if you passed the judgment of the horde, you could go home with your shoes full of gold. So here's a story about a drunken peasant who had such luck. He was coming home from town late at night, and his path led him through the woods. The wind started blowing, and a voice called out, In the middle of the path! In the middle of the path! This was a friendly warning if there be such a thing, for the rough huntsmen were known to spare those who kept to the middle way. But the peasant paid no attention to it. Suddenly, a tall man with a long white beard riding a gray horse came out of the clouds. He tossed the peasant one end of a heavy chain. "'How strong are you?' he asked. "'Let's have a contest. Let's see who can pull the hardest.' The peasant took hold of the heavy chain, and while the hunter was getting back on his horse, he wrapped his end of the chain around a nearby oak tree. The hunter pulled and pulled and pulled, but he could not budge the man. He came back down again and dismounted. "'You wrapped your end around the oak tree,' he said to the peasant. "'No, no, no, no,' responded the peasant, quickly undoing the chain. "'See, here, it's in my hands.' Well, we'll have another go at it then, cried the hunter. I will have you in the clouds yet. And once again, as he got back on his horse, the peasant quickly wrapped his end of the chain around the oak tree. Up above, the phantom dogs were barking and the horses were neighing and the hunter pulled and pulled and pulled. The oak tree creaked at its roots and shook and shivered. And the peasant was terrified. But the oak tree stood. You have pulled well, said the hunter. I've challenged many men, and you are the first to withstand me. I will reward you. Then he rejoined the ghostly horde of hunters, and they went on their way with a fearful rumbling and howling. The peasant subdued and suddenly quite sober, cautiously went along his way. Suddenly, from an unseen height, a groaning stag fell from the sky and landed on the ground in front of him. Then the mysterious hunter appeared and jumped down from his gray horse. He pulled out a sharp knife and quickly cut up the animal. The blood is yours he said to the peasant, and a hind quarter as well. My lord, said the peasant, your servant has neither a bucket nor a pot. 
pull off your boot, ordered the hunter. The peasant did so, and the hunter filled it with blood. Now take the blood and this meat home to your wife and child, he ordered. And then the hunter was gone. At first, the peasant was so terrified that he barely felt the weight of his burden. But gradually, the boot, the blood, and the meat became heavier and heavier until he was barely able to carry it. Tired and bent and dripping with sweat, he finally reached his hut. He opened the door and collapsed inside, and his family gathered all around. And behold, his boot was filled with gold, and the hindquarter had become a leather bag filled with silver coins. In the old days, children used to leave their boots or socks out by the hearth on solstice eve, filled with carrots and hay and sugar for Schleppner. In return, Odin would leave them a gift. Now we leave out milk and cookies for Santa, and he does the same. Many think that it was the influence of Christianity that merged the figure of St. Nicholas, who I mentioned at the beginning of this show, with that of Odin, thus producing the image of a kindly, gift-bearing Santa Claus with a long white beard and eight flying reindeer. An event like that would certainly shake me out of my complacency. <laughs> How about you? It's one result of a deep experience of our connection to that other world, the world of Odin, Santa Claus, St. Nick, and even the psychedelic mushroom-eating reindeer in Siberia all point towards that connection and towards the reality of an unseen realm behind this one. Whether or not you join me in that, I think we can agree that stories like this one and the others that we tell in this holiday season remind us that we are all recipients of some form of generosity. Now, before I leave you today, I want to share one of my favorite Christmas stories. It's a poem, actually. The poem, Twas the Night Before Christmas, which is also referred to as A Visit from St. Nicholas. I've always loved this, and as you listen, look for the references to Odin and to some of the other antecedents of Santa Claus that I've shared with you in this program, because I think you'll be really surprised at how many of them weave through this familiar poem. "'Twas the night before Christmas. "'Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds, while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. And Ma in her kerchief, and I in my cap, had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap. When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, I sprang from the bed to see what was the matter. 
Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters and threw up the sash. The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave the luster of midday to objects below. When what to my wondering eyes should appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. With a little old driver so lively and quick, I knew in a moment it must be St. Nick. More rapid than eagles his coursers they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now, Dasher now, Dancer now, Prancer and Vixen, on Comet, on Cupid, on Donner and Blitzen, to the top of the porch, to the top of the wall, now dash away, dash away, dash away all. As dry leaves before the wild hurricane fly, when they meet with an obstacle, mount to the sky, so up to the housetop the coursers they flew, with the sleigh full of toys, and St. Nicholas too. And then in a twinkling I heard on the roof the prancing and pawing of each little hoof. As I drew in my head and was turning around, down the chimney St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys was flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry. His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard of his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a round little belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word but went straight to his work and filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk, and laying his finger aside of his nose and giving a nod up the chimney, he rose. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team gave a whistle, and away they all flew like the down of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim, ere he drove out of sight, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night. Happy holidays to you. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week, and in the meantime, keep the mystery in your life alive. Mm-hmm.